While we remain standing, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 131 this evening. As I mentioned this morning, I'm going to teach out of a, one of my favorite psalms this evening with the Christmas holiday and the New Year's and everything being chopped up as it is. I didn't want to start uh, a new book and then leave it uh, uh, uncontinued for a little while. So uh, this is where we'll look this evening. It's kind of interesting, I think, as you, we think about the Psalms and the ones that become our favorites. Everybody has their favorites. There are certain Psalms that are kind of the favorites of everyone, uh, depending on whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And then, uh, and then we have our favorites that can kind of be unique to ourselves by and large. Psalm 131, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word always. Thank you for... Um, the broad diversity of it, all that it speaks to, all that it addresses, all of the different forms that it takes, and the Psalms, and this poetry, and Proverbs, and historical books, and so many things. And we're grateful for every jot, every tittle, every chapter, every verse, every sentence. And we pray that you would just be upon our lives here tonight in this place, and that you would give us a sweet time in um, exploring and uh, receiving unto ourselves what this great work of your Holy Spirit that was going on in David's life as, uh, that birthed this beautiful, beautiful psalm. And we pray for this work of your Spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Before we get into the Word, there was a, um, I was out um, window shopping related to Christmas the other day and actually two or three weeks ago and at the time I was considering for my Sunday morning message the uh, three wise men and the Lord redirected me related to that but I won't say it was confirmation but this is uh, what I saw in the <laughs> now that's just pure sexism right there and they're selling it this cancel culture has gotten completely out of control on things. I'm glad all of you women are getting a big kick out of that. There's a couple of other ones that I saw that I, I thought were worth taking a picture of as well. You have a person or two like that in your life? I certainly, I certainly do. Here's another one, a little wacky, a little philosophical. So, there you go. That's a little taste of what's out there for your last-minute uh, Christmas shopping. But as we come to Psalm 131, as I mentioned, it is one of my favorite psalms. It is a psalm of David, as it's introduced to us uh, there. And in this Psalm 131, David gives us a recipe for a calm and a quiet uh, soul. And I'd like you to notice that word calmed in verse 2. It's a wonderful word, isn't it? That word uh, calm. And uh, you almost never hear it when you just stop and you think about it as you read it in the Scriptures. And, 
and you just stop and you think, when is the last time I have heard uh, the word calm used in our culture? When is the last time I've heard of any individual use it as a part of, of their uh, vocabulary? It's become something that is very, very rare within our culture. So rare that it's hardly even uh, spoken about, let alone something that is uh, experienced in, in our lives. Uh, the word calm in the original language, it literally means to be even, to be level. Now, I don't know what you think of in your mind, a word picture, a picture that might come up into your mind when you think of the word calm. I suppose that all of us would have a picture. If we were to think about this is a calm scene, or when I think about calm, this is the picture that comes to my mind. I suppose that all of us uh, would have a picture uh, like that. My picture is always the same. It's an odd one, really, for me, because I'm not that much of an outdoors a hunter or fisherman or anything like that. But when I, when I think of calm, I think of a, uh, a lake, a mountain lake, high up in the elevation. It's summertime. Uh, the sun has risen. And you already feel that it's going to be a very, very hot day. And typically that lake just sits in, in that condition right out in front of you. And it's a, a sheet of glass. It is the picture uh, of, uh, of calm. And uh, I also think about it here in uh, Modesto in these summer mornings that we have when it is so hot, maybe 114, 104, whatever it might be. And uh, we have that early morning kind of crispness. It gets down to like 84 uh, at about 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. And, uh, and it, but you go outside and it, the city hasn't quite woken up in, in its entirety. And there's just this calm that, that is there in, in introducing uh, a, a new day. I want you to notice that David declares his soul uh, to be calmed. And he's declaring that he possesses a soul that is calm, a soul that is uh, settled. And that's something to really think about in, in terms of our own experience in life. And so his soul refers to what he is on the outside. We can all give the appearance of calm and uh, on the exterior and not be calm uh, at all on the interior. But he declares that what he is on the inside, the outside of the sight of other people, uh, that he is calm. His heart, his mind, his emotions, his thinking, the inner man, the spiritual man uh, that is there by the Holy Spirit, he describes it as being uh, calm. And he's declaring himself to be inwardly calm, as inwardly calm and settled as that mountain lake and my kind of image related to that and whatever the image is uh, for you. You notice as well that he also speaks in verse 2 of a quieted soul. And this speaks of a soul that is quiet, a soul that is at rest, a soul that is at peace. And that's another wow word within uh, our, our culture and how attractive and desirable uh, is this thing called a quieted soul. So we all think about in life, we all think of about our need for a little bit of peace and quiet at times, don't we? Uh, sometimes we'll even say it. I just need a little bit of peace and, and quiet. 
I mean, every mother knows something about that. Every father knows something about that. Every employee or employer knows uh, something about that. Uh, At the end of the day, everybody understands the need for some peace and quiet. I want you to notice as well in verse 2 that David likens his soul to a weaned child with his mother. And that's just a poetic way of saying that he is content. And a weaned child sits contentedly on his mother's lap. He sits on his mother's lap with no other motive except to sit on his mother's lap. Now, when a mother holds a nursing child, the child can become a very, very impatient, restless in his mother's arm because he's not content merely to be held, but he also wants to be nourished. And so he'll fuss until he gets it. And so a a weaned child is a child who is content in his mother's arm. And so in all of this, David is declaring, think about it, declaring his soul to be calm, to be quiet, and to be content. I mean, there might be one or two of us in the room here tonight that you hear those words as a reality for a human life, and we can find ourselves kind of smacking our lips in terms of uh, the very thought of them. Now, notice that this calmness of soul, this quietness of soul, this contentment of soul, it didn't just happen in David's life. You know that David, notice that David declared, I have calmed and quieted my soul. So this tells us that he took deliberate actions, he made deliberate decisions in his life in order for his life to be characterized by these things. And why don't these things just happen in our lives? Why does it require uh, deliberate decisions and actions on our part in order for our soul to be characterized by these things? And it's because we live in a fallen world. And and the world that we live in, you might have noticed, is anything but calm, (laughs) anything but quiet, and anything uh, but content. That's the entire culture uh, around us, the very opposite of of David's heart as he describes it uh, here. And so all of their disquietness, all of their, uh, the anxiety, all of the covetousness, it invades our calm, it invades our quietness, it invades uh, our contentment, and and it it continually invades our attempts at intimacy with God. Always the tyranny of the urgent rising up. And because the world is the way that it is, Calmness of soul, quietness of soul, contentment of soul doesn't just happen. It requires deliberate actions, deliberate choices, godly decisions in my life in order for it to be so. So we ask ourselves then, where then is it found? And in this psalm, David gives us three things that he lists here by the Holy Spirit, which he recognized to being keys to experience a life of calm, inner calm and quietness and contentment as a child of God living in a world that is anything but those three things. And he tells us how he did it. Number one, in verse one, first David determined that he would guard his heart from haughtiness. He would guard his heart from pride. And so a calm uh, spirit, Uh, A a quiet soul requires the shunning of pride in our lives. Pride is uh, the absolute arch enemy 
of a calm life because it produces uh, the very highest and uh, most high-pressure and high-maintenance life imaginable. One of the words that's translated pride in the the New Testament, uh, in the original language, it it, 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 it literally means to see myself above. To see myself as above others, to see myself as better than others. And if I see myself as superior to others, then of course I'm going to feel a constant pressure to prove that I am. And since I am not intrinsically better than anybody else in the entire world, I've now taken on an impossible task to myself. I've taken it upon myself to prove on a daily basis what has literally no basis in reality. Uh, Paul makes it clear in, in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 6, chapter 3, uh, in, uh, in correcting this, he says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And, and so there is no rest in this thing called pride. Now, the Bible teaches that pride is a source of all kinds of, of conflict uh, in our lives. It will always lead us into conflict. Uh, one of my favorite verses in this regard is Proverbs chapter 13, Uh, verse 10. By pride comes only contention. That's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? By pride comes only contention. And the reason that's so is, is because pride can only be expressed at the expense of others, and they tend to notice it when we do, it will inevitably cause a conflict with others. Additionally, unchecked pride uh, in our lives will even force God to humble us, and and ultimately, if necessary, to humble us uh, publicly. Jesus spoke about a parable uh, concerning this, and the parable was uh, of uh, people being uh, invited to a wedding feast, and that there was a literal wedding feast, and, and people were coming to it, and all, everybody was taking the highest seats uh, in the hall. And Jesus warned against taking the highest or the most prominent seats, lest the master of the wedding feast come in and determine that you've taken a seat that is higher than they had intended for you and force you then to a lower seat publicly before everyone else. Better to take the lowest seat. And uh, that's the place of peace. And then there's the potential that perhaps the master of the feast would then come and say, what are you sitting down here for? Let me bring you to a a more prominent uh, seat within the hall. And Jesus closed that uh, parable by declaring, for whoever exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And sooner or later, the proud person always gets humbled because our pride always causes us to ultimately overestimate our importance to push beyond what is appropriate in relationships, and then ultimately it forces even God to rise up and stop us. And so a key to a calm and quiet life and a calm and quiet soul is humility. 
esteeming others better than myself. Philippians chapter 2, familiar passage, but let's pretend we've never read it before and let it hit us with that kind of freshness. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as man, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And there is a peace to, to be found in that place where we uh, take and clothe ourselves with humility, a peace that the proud person will never know. Uh, there's nothing to live up to in a humble life, and, uh, and it never, ever causes conflict. So the first thing that has to go in order to attain a calm and a quiet, contented soul is pride. And the second thing in verse 1, it requires the shunning of selfish ambition. You notice that David said that he guarded his eyes from being lofty. And this speaks in a negative sense uh, of the person who always has their eyes set on a position in life that's higher than the one that they uh, already have. And so David is talking about selfish ambition, an ambition that is born uh, out, of, out of pride. And uh, I'm going to strive, I'm going to fight until I get what I want, and nobody better get in my way. It is important to understand that not all ambition is condemned in the Bible, just selfish ambition. Uh, God, help us to be uh, more and more ambitious for the things of God in, in, a, in a spiritual uh, kind of sense, in the advancement of, of the kingdom uh, of, of God. So a God-directed ambition concerning His work, it's a good thing. But selfish ambition is condemned in the Scripture everywhere. Again, we go back to Philippians chapter 2 in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Now, selfish ambition is striving after something that is beyond uh, God's plan for my life, uh, His calling upon my life, uh, for something beyond His gifting in my life, for something that is outside of His will or His purpose uh, for my life. And it happens uh, in life. And this has become so uh, prominent uh, in life that in the, in the business community it's been given a name. And the name is the Peter Principle, which states that the average person and in uh, the workforce will ultimately end up being promoted to their level of incompetence. So that the bulk of the work that is being done in any business environment uh, in a company is being done by those who have not yet been promoted to the level of their incompetence. And it's not just a temptation in the world, but it's a temptation in the kingdom of God uh, as well for us as Christians. I remember many, many years ago being a, a very, very relatively new Christian 
and I was in a leadership meeting at, the, at that uh, time, and the pastor made a very, very simple observation, but I, it was a very, very profound uh, observation when he said it, and it was just an aside as he declared it. He declared, one of the hardest things that you'll ever have to deal with as a leader is to resist a person who's attempting to exalt themselves beyond their gifting. And it is so very, very true. Uh, their eyes are lofty. They want something that is beyond their gifting, beyond their calling, and they won't stop until they get it. Now, this loftiness of eyes also speaks of the person who always has their eyes set on some material possession that they don't uh, yet possess. And so life begins to consist of uh, more, 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 better, 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 which of course is kind of the American way. But the problem with that is there's no calmness in it, there's no peace in it, there's no quiet, there's no contentment in that. And to live my life completely focused upon what I don't have and what I want is going to ultimately result in missing out in all of the sense of joy and blessing to be experienced and just being thankful for what I possess now. And it's a frightening thing to me. I don't know how God has built you, uh, but this is a temptation uh, for me, not exactly in the sense that I, I put it forward here. I'm not always wanting more, 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 and better, better, uh, better. But it's possible to live uh, my entire life for tomorrow. And then one day come to the end of that life and realize I missed life entirely. I never spent any meaningful time in the present. Uh, always in the future, always in the next thing, that uh, a, a goal of the next achievement, of the next task that has to be done. And not enough time in uh, counting our blessings, as the old saying goes, and naming them one by one. The Bible teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith, in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. He talks about godliness with contentment. That is the definition of a truly rich person. A person who is content in a, their relationship with God and then whatever God chooses to add to our life out of that relationship, that is a person who is truly rich in life. Godliness with contentment. And maybe not always in material wealth, but uh, here's something wonderful I think has happened uh, to David, happened to the psalmist. He's come to a place in life where he no longer judges riches solely based upon money. 
solely based upon material possessions or power or position. He's come to a place in in his life in which he now measures richness in terms of the calmness of his soul, in terms of the quietness of his soul, in terms of the contentment of his soul. And he now realizes that these are the most valuable things uh, in life, the marks of true wealth. And and it is a wonderful thing when that happens in a human life. And the psalmist knew it. As King David had power, he had wealth beyond measure. And yet, here he comes to a point in his life where he came to measure uh, true wealth in a different way. Third and finally, uh, you notice that he says that he did not concern him with great matters, nor with things too profound for him. So David has come to a place in his spiritual uh, life where he didn't feel uh, the responsibility, for instance, to answer every question in life, and certainly not feeling uh, that it is required of him to, uh, as a part of his responsibility, to explain God, to explain the ways of God to every person that finds themselves doubting God or in a crisis of faith. We think about Job's friends in the book of Job who felt uh, they were, felt tremendous pressure. They were fixers. They were fixers. They want to solve things right now. Whether they understand the problem or not, they've got the solutions. And they came to Job, and they didn't understand one thing about what Job was in, in the middle of. And here he is in this great trial, and rather than just simply encouraging Job uh, to trust in uh, uh, God as being good and loving and gracious, they felt it was their responsibility to explain to Job uh, what God was doing at this time in his life. And so on and on they went, uh, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. Uh, you get to a point in time when you, in your devotional reading of the Bible each year to hit those chapters and kind of race through it, but I'm enough of a legalist that I don't. And, and, uh, and, and, and Job, God must be doing this uh, because of sin in your life. And yet nothing could have been further from the truth. And if we feel that it's our responsibility to explain the ways of God behind every difficulty in every uh, Christian's life, uh, then we will never know calm. We will never know a quiet soul because there is so much that we do not know and that we do not understand. It is God's job to explain Himself. And so I need to accept that. I can't do God's job for Him. And I've tried to do it, and by the way, it's a considerable task. It's just our job to simply and lovingly encourage faith in God in the lives of people that are going through uh, storms, just as the psalmist does in verse 3. He doesn't try to fix everything. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and uh, forever. Uh, There's the old saying that's worth committing to memory for use in our own life, but also in encouraging other people, and that is when we're faced with what we don't know in life, how important it is to fall back on what we do know. That God is with us. That God is for us. That God uh, loves us. 
and to keep these things at the forefront of our minds and then to wait for those truths that he's with us he's for us he loves us to then wait for those truths to then have the final say in the situation that we find ourselves in and the psalmist has come to a place in life where he's willing to accept mystery in a relationship with God. And there's always going to be mystery in a relationship with God. And, and to have a relationship with God means I'm going to have to get uh, used to mystery. I can only track with him uh, uh, only so far on any subject that he would like to introduce. And then there's the vanishing point at which I can no longer track with him and uh, that truth. He understands where that truth goes beyond the revelation that he's given in the Word, but I can only understand it that far. And so there's mystery related uh, to it. We can only explain his ways uh, so uh, so far. And as the old saying goes, if we could understand everything about him, it would make him smaller than my mind. If he's smaller than my mind, then he's smaller than me. And why would I want to worship someone who is smaller uh, than me? And it makes God uh, useless to us. And of course, uh, it, it, it represents him as he, he really isn't. And the old saying, a God small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship. And it's wonderful to know that and to believe that because it's absolutely true. But we still find ourselves at times uh, bulking related to uh, that, that mystery and we need to remind ourselves of it. And so the psalmist has come to a place where he doesn't demand that God explains himself every time he does something uh, in our lives that is different than what we would want to have done uh, in our lives. And so he's found calmness and quiet of soul that it comes, not, it comes through faith, uh, not by explanation. And that's another great saying. Uh, Warren Wiersbe probably has said it more than anybody else in all of my reading or listening to people. We walk by faith and not by explanation. I want to walk by explanation and not by faith. But there's no peace in that because God in His wisdom doesn't always explain things to us. And then, uh, not concerning myself with great matters, things too profound for me, also includes not involving myself in things that are none of my business. Someone might say in the privacy of their own heart, you mean there are things in life that are none of my business? In a word, yes. And in three words, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> For uh, two or three witnesses, let every fact be confirmed. And if I get involved in something that is none of my business, those kind of situations have a way of turning nasty on me and end up biting uh, us. Uh, again, a favorite uh, proverb, very picturesque, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 17. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own, uh, does so out of pride, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. Now, I don't know when the last time is that you lifted a dog off the ground by its ears. But when you do that, what's going to happen? You're going, to go, you're going to get bit. And depending on the size of the dog, it's something you'll never ever do again uh, by virtue of the damage that, uh, that is done. 
But the meddlesome person will do it over and over and over and over again. And what a wonderful protection it is to our calm and quiet spirit to learn to say to myself, and and when necessary, to say it to others, that is none of my business. That is none of my business. And I exhort myself regularly on, on that issue. I hear a lot of things in the course of my life in the same way that you do. And I say to much of it, that is none of my business. Because God gives us the grace for our business in life, but He does not give us uh, the, the grace for the business of everyone else around me. And I think of the Apostle Peter who gives all of us hope in our Christian uh, life and in uh, his mountaintop experiences, but also in his uh, valley. He's just been restored and recommissioned by God. Jesus, following his uh, three denials of Jesus, following uh, this kind of disaster uh, uh, on the morning of, uh, of Jesus' crucifixion, he's be, been recommissioned as, uh, into public ministry as an apostle there uh, on the, the Sea of Galilee. And no sooner does that happen, and Peter turns around and he sees John, and, 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 and as he sees John near Jesus, he said, said concerning him, but Lord, what about this man? And you remember Jesus' response. If, it, if I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Remember Jesus had told Peter even how he would die in the, in the course of his, his public ministry. And I think we all have a little Peter in us, some more than others. And there are three great themes to Jesus' rebuke. Peter, number one, stay out of my business. And then number two, stay out of John's business. And number three, mind your own business. And I tell myself this regularly. And I'll say to myself, what is that to you? God has given you plenty to keep you fully busy. That's none of my business. Otherwise, I would lose the peace and quiet of my soul. And when we find ourselves listening to or getting involved in something that is none of our business, and we know it, it is important to get out of it as soon as we can. I think that this statement also reveals that David accepted the fact that he had limitations upon his life. He's a king. He is the king in the borders of Israel, bigger than they had ever been. He has money, he has wealth, he has power, he has influence. I mean, he has authority. And, and yet he realized, I have, even I have limitations in my life. He recognized he couldn't do everything, couldn't be everything, and he couldn't know everything. And one of the hard things about maintaining this kind of a heart or a soul in life is is we live in a day of information overload. I mean, within within a minute, uh, we are aware if a dog has been hit in a parking lot in Pakistan. And it's on one of the websites that we go to for our news. We know everything that's going on in the world, if, if we want to. 
And I cannot have a calm and quiet soul and know everything about what's happening in the world, in a a city or a neighborhood, or even within extended family. And we have to become like David did, discerning about how much information, what kind of information I allow into my life. Again, Paul writing to the church at Philippi, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And I don't think we were ever created to know as much as we do or to process as much as we do as human beings in this age. It is simply overwhelming and we are finite and we are finite beings with finite mental and emotional resources and we have to direct those things to where God wants us to direct them and not into anything and everything that comes up up on a screen uh, in our life or by whatever means it might come to us every one of us has a threshold And we can only do so much, we can only know so much, we can only be involved in so much. And someone might say, well, I thought the Bible said I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's absolutely true. But all things that He has called us to do and to be, not all things, period. And so we need to focus our minds and our life and our time on the things that God has called us to do. There's an old saying, they talk about a, a, a craftsman, that he, uh, he'll be referred to as the jack of all trades, but the master of none. And it refers to somebody who does an okay job on a bunch of different things, but never quite becomes uh, expert on any one or two things uh, in, in his life or uh, uh, in, in his trade. And, uh, and this happens spiritually too where we are kind of okay at a bunch of things, but not excellent or deep on any particular one or two things. And our culture is like that, and it nurtures that within us. Our culture has been described as a river that's a hundred miles wide and uh, two inches uh, deep. And since we cannot do everything, we need to focus our time, our resources on those one or two things that we do well that God has gifted us in, and then leave the rest to God and and His calling upon other lives to then do those things. I think about how Jesus stayed focused on the Father's will for His life. I mean, they're coming to Him uh, uh, with... Uh, urgent needs. I I don't know when the last time somebody brought a dead person to you to raise from the dead or to bring a leper to you to cleanse them of their leprosy or to heal whatever disease is going on in their body. This was his portion all of the time in the three and a half years of his public ministry. 
And and here is all of these demands upon his time. And one morning he gets up and and no doubt was his practice. Got up very early to go off to pray before the day would begin as he's going to hear the Father's heart and instruction to him for the day. They hunt him down and they say, the whole village is looking uh, for you after all of the healings that you did uh, uh, that night. And then Jesus responded and he said to them, for I always do those things that please him. And he stayed focused on what the Father had called him to do. The Apostle Paul's very same way stayed very focused. He wrote to the church at Corinth in chapter 1, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he understood that. And he accepted that about his life. Clearly, because he has to explain himself to the church at Corinth, they expected that of him. It was an expectation they placed upon him. And yet, he pushed off the expectation because he understood what he was really called to do and to be in the the kingdom of God. Of, of God. And so all of the persecution that he went through, all of the false accusations, all of the ingratitude that was a part of the Apostle Paul's life, they couldn't move him from what God had called him to do. No one can do all things. And if we try to do everything and be involved in everything, we'll never make any kind of significant difference, meaningful difference. And the one, two, or three things that God intends us to have a significant uh, and meaningful difference uh, uh, in. And so, uh, we must identify those things, give ourselves fully to them, and then leave the others to God and to others. And here is David. He forcibly limited himself. He limited his focus upon what God had called him and gifted him to do. And the result was a calm soul, a quiet soul, and a peaceful soul. And there's nothing like talking about something like this at the Christmas season. And we can ask ourselves this evening, in the privacy of our own hearts, have I spread myself too thin? Not just at Christmas time, but just period uh, within life. What amount of my life am I doing on the basis of the expectations of other people? or the guilt that I put upon myself to do anything and everything that comes into my mind, as opposed to bringing those things to the Lord and saying, Lord, is this something that you are going to use, a situation in a life you are going to use me in? Is this my business, or are you going to use somebody else, and I need to stay focused on on something else? And sometimes we can find ourselves at a place in our Christian life and say, how in the world did I get here? And you can burn out as a Christian. And then to just make some changes. It's okay to to make changes, as David obviously had to do. And it's more than okay. It's needed. One of the reasons that I love Psalm 131 is that it is so immensely practical. I mean, we can all understand what David is talking uh, uh, about here. Just good, practical instruction. And so, a calm soul, a quiet soul, and contentment, they're real possibilities in life. 
but they don't just happen. They are the result of choices that we need to make to protect them. By shunning pride and embracing humility, by shunning selfish ambition and covetousness, and then not concerning myself with matters that are too great for me or too profound for me, but instead uh, embracing faith and entrusting those things to God. And so my prayer and my hope uh, this evening is that Psalm 131 will become a friend, more than a friend, that it will become a protection to us in our walk with the Lord and in our service to the Lord to help us walk in a calm and quiet soul that God desires that each of us experience. He longs for that. We're not copping out when, when we uh, desire these things and move in that direction. We're not disappointing Him. This is something that He wants for each and every one of us in order that we might enjoy the Christian life as fully as He desires us to. So I'd like the worship team to come up this evening and ask them to close us uh, in some worship this evening. I'll come back up and close us formally in prayer and, and dismissal, but to give us some time just to think about this Psalm 131. Some of you might say, um, I don't know why in the world that would be anybody's favorite. I got nothing out of it uh, this evening. But then there might be one or two others of us who say, uh, you know, um, you went from preaching to meddling a couple times uh, in that sermon, and this is a time to kind of talk those things over uh, with the Lord before we go out into the rat race once again. Trinity, would you lead us? Father, we thank you so much that we are your workmanship. We thank you that what you have begun in our lives, you are committed to bring to completion. But as we look at this Psalm 131, you're the only one we're not even aware with any kind of clarity of about how far each and every one of our lives are lived away from this that is our portion or how close we live to it. But we thank you that you love us, that you're for us, and we pray that you would take us by the hand and walk us as you did with David into this reality in each of our lives. And Lord, we thank you for the week that lies out before us. We thank you that we don't go there alone. We go there with you, armed with all of your promises, undergird by all of your promises. And we look forward to what it is that you have in mind for each of our lives. We sanctify our lives to you, and we ask that you would make our lives in ways that we can be aware of or unaware of uh, significantly influential for you in large things and in small things by your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being your children. And Lord, we long for every single person in this world to know you, to enjoy the life with you that we enjoy. Bless us, use us, Lord. Hold us close this coming week, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this evening and you are not yet a Christian, um, we're going to be up in front immediately after the service. The old saying, it's kind of a little bit corny, but it's true uh, that uh, we uh, aren't a, a Christian by coming into a church any more than uh, 
Well, you know the rest of the sentence. It's the top of my head here. Something about a burger and McDonald's or a car and in the garage. But the point is, is that we don't become a Christian by simply coming into an environment like this. It's a, a point in time in which we commit our lives personally to Jesus as our Savior. And we're going to be up in front after the service, and we'd love to do that with you today. Jesus is the reason for the season. If you need prayer for anything in your life tonight, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Trinity, would you close us now?